these are brands that have been around for a really long time. Black people and people of colour have always been there. It's only now that the Fenty effect has come into the market that they're realising that there's always been an opportunity there. You just have to talk to people in the right way. Hello and welcome back to Beauty Island, the beauty podcast that celebrates life and lipstick. I'm your host, beauty journalist Brittany Stewart. In each episode, I sit down with a guest and ask them about the eight beauty products that have a special memory or meaning for them. The ones they take to a desert island, also known as Beauty Island, that I am sending them off to. Maybe it's the beauty product that defined their teens, the one they grew up watching their mum or grandma apply, or the perfume that instantly sparks a memory of a special place or person. Along the way, we find out more about their life, career, and the people and events that have shaped them into who they are today. Today, my guest is Maeva Heim, marketer, podcaster, and founder of soon-to-be-released hair care brand Bread Beauty Supply. We talked about her changing career from law to creative, the link between hair and identity, progress and diversity in beauty, and given Maeva is the co-host of a reality TV podcast, Reality Check, we touched on a little love island too. She came to my house on a boiling hot day when the aircon wasn't working, so major props to her for that. Her voice is incredibly calming and I found her attitude to creativity and business, and for want of a better word, the hustle of getting stuff done, so inspiring. I think you will too. As always, if you enjoy listening to Beauty Island, please subscribe and rate and review on Apple Podcasts. That really, really helps other people find the podcast and I always listen to the feedback that you leave to make sure I'm making the podcast you want to listen to. If you are on Instagram, you can follow me at Beauty Island Podcast and I love seeing you share where you're listening from in your stories. Now over to Maver. Enjoy. Maver, welcome to Beauty Island. Brittany, thanks for having me. Now, I'm going to kick off with, I suppose, kind of a big question. Mm-hmm. What would you say your relationship with beauty is? Is it something that you enjoy? Oh, that is a big question. I would say my relationship to beauty is, I don't know, somewhat indifferent almost. I mean, I love beauty. It is the area that I'm kind of pursuing as a career, building a brand. But I had never intended to end up in beauty. Even when I worked in my earlier career at L'Oreal, that was never my plan. I had always planned to do law, but ended up in marketing somehow and marketing in beauty. And I thought, yeah, I'll do a one-year stint at L'Oreal. And then I guess I kind of got used to it and and really enjoyed the kind of strategic um, and operational parts of it um, and was just fascinated by it. So I think from like a business and career perspective, I'm fascinated by it. And then from a personal level... I don't know. I have a a strange relationship with beauty. I've been through so many different phases in my life of being, you know, a massive beauty junkie and wanting to buy all the latest things and using all the latest things to kind of paring back my routine a little bit more. That's a tricky one to answer. But overall, I'm, you know, super fascinated by the space um, and what's going to happen in the industry in the next 10 years, especially as we start talking a lot more about sustainability and what that means and what that means in beauty specifically, because there is so much waste. 
you know, as a consumer and even as a business owner, it's hard to kind of reconcile that you want the planet to not die, um, but that you also love beauty and, and want to continue using the products and also producing the products. So the next sort of five or 10 years will be a really interesting time. And obviously, as you mentioned, as a beauty brand founder, Bread Beauty Supply, which we will get to mm-hmm. in a little bit, I imagine that there has been a lot of kind of trend forecasting, taking a deep look into that kind of strategy yeah. of the industry and what it will look like. I think it's interesting what you mentioned before about kind of going from having to have it all to now a much more kind of refined mm. makeup collection is kind of in- indicative of the mood of beauty in general, which is really interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Now let's rewind a bit to the beginning, your first product on your list, which is the product that you grew up watching your mum use. And it is a fragrance. Can you tell me what it is and kind of the memories surrounding it? Yeah, so the the specific product that I remember watching my mum use is a fragrance called Trezor by Lancome. Uh, It's still around. Um, This was in the 90s. And my mum has always been a massive fragrance hoarder. So she would always have like tons and tons of fragrance in her cupboard. Uh, we would go back to West Africa where her family is and, and that's what she would take as gifts. That was the gift of choice. Um, and so she would always kind of stock up on a lot of fragrance that we could take over. Um, but Longcom specifically, um, I remember she would have all of these little mini kits um, of the small fragrances. And I just remember the little tiny Trezor bottle and then the full size bottle as well. And yeah, it always brings me back to my mum. And funnily enough, that fragrance is actually what helped me land my internship at L'Oreal. Oh, really? Yeah. So I interviewed with the marketing manager for Longcom to get the internship. And the question that she asked me was, she actually pulled the Trezor out of her bag and said, what What would you do if you're on our team in terms of marketing this product? And I was like, okay, I think I've got this. <laughs> And I just spoke about the fact that, you know, my mum had used it growing up and in terms of positioning that it was probably more of a um, older fragrance um, and perhaps there was something that they could do around like some emotive marketing and bringing up those memories and and having a campaign around the mum passing it on to the daughter. And yeah, I think she was pretty impressed and she hired me. You landed the internship, (laughs) yes. Now, speaking of your mum, and I do think it's interesting when you said that beauty was something not always something that you knew you wanted to go into considering mm-hmm. you are the, a beauty brand founder, you worked at L'Oreal and also I think your mum had a connection with beauty because she had a salon in Perth, yes. is that right? Yeah, she did. And I listened to your great interview you did with Alison Rice and Offline, who's yeah, also a, also stranded somewhere on Beauty Island. <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of talked about kind of your early days and I guess earning pocket money, sweeping yep. the floor, doing braiding. Can you tell me a bit more about those memories. Yeah, it is funny because when I had to reflect back on, you know, what my life has been like and and what my relationship to beauty has been, I realized that I've actually been around beauty my entire life. Even my grandmother, as I found out, was kind of the local soap maker in her village in wow. Africa, so she would make soaps. And then in the 90s, my mum had an African hair salon in Perth. So definitely one of the first in Perth. Uh, I like to say probably one of the first in Australia as well. It was a long time ago. Um, But it was just like this little shed uh, in the middle of Northbridge, which is kind of adjacent to the city, uh, a little more up and coming in terms of an area. So, yeah, it was this shed off the back of like an Italian restaurant or something. And, yeah, I would go in on weekends when I was like 10 years old and sweep the floors and answer the phones when she was braiding and take appointments, um, help her braid the hair. And then I would go sometimes on the weekends with my friends, Talia and Debbie, 
um, who were my best friends in, in primary school, and we would like go out on the street and busk and put a little hat out and do some dances. Um, so it was a really kind of fun childhood and, and to kind of get that exposure to hair and a lot of the products that were designed for textured hair as well that we would import from the US. And I remember even, you know, when I was like 12, 13, I was obsessed with eBay and I would like buy makeup brushes really cheap from eBay and then try and tell my mum to sell them in the salon. And I'd be on all of these like hair care forums from the US where people were talking about things like lace wigs, which were so unknown at the time. Um, there's just like a specific type of wig that looks really realistic. Um, and I would figure out who everyone was using as their supplier, contact suppliers in China and get like bulk discounts and import lace wigs and, and so extensions. And, yeah, I don't know where that came. I mean, I guess it came from my mum. But yeah, it was something that I had kind of always been around and really enjoyed that experience of my mum having this salon, even though I probably didn't realise it at the time. But looking back, super grateful to have had that exposure. Now, you mentioned that you started studying law mm-hmm. and I think it was towards the end you kind of decided that you weren't going to pursue it as a career. And, and listening to you talk about it, it seems like it was actually quite a profound realisation that kind of veered yeah. you off the course. What, what was it that indicated to you that maybe this wasn't what you wanted to pursue as a career after all? So for me, I've always been interested in social justice and those kind of areas of law and criminal law. I never really envisioned that I'd be a corporate lawyer. Um, And so I did a lot of work experience in criminal law specifically and with community legal centres. And it was during one of my work experience placements that I was a paralegal on this case. And I can't say too much about it, but it was a really big murder case. And I remember that I had almost like discovered this piece of evidence that could potentially, you know, be a big part of the trial. And we were on the defence. So, you know... Emotions were really heightened. Um, It was all over the media. You know, you'd walk out of the courthouse and there's, you know, cameras and and media everywhere. And it was a really, really intense experience. And I do remember the exact moment where I was like, I am not doing this for the next 40 years of my life. And I got home after discovering this potential critical piece of evidence and sat in my car in the driveway of my parents' house and I had something on a USB because I had to um, have a look at it at home. And I sat in my car for like 10 minutes and was like, I, no, I can't do this. I, I don't want to, this is going to be 40 years at least of my life. You know, you have to go through all of these other steps post-graduation. And I thought, do I really want to go through that and commit to this? Or do I want to explore other options that aren't as emotionally draining? And decided that, you know what, I'm going to explore business um, and see where that can take me. I think I had kind of discovered that I wanted to do something a bit more creative. I'm also very type A. I was like, I want to be really, really good at what I do. And I thought I wanted to give myself that chance with business. You know, I'd, I'd aced my degree and thought, you know, if I'm really, really good at this and I did well in law as well, but I did really well in business. And I thought there was a real potential to you know, have a good career. And I think it was interesting because another thing you mentioned in the offline episode was not kind of realising that you were a creative person until in your 20s. And I mean, you look at what you're doing now in your career and it's just kind of unfathomable that you didn't recognise the creativity. Yeah. 
Definitely. Even now, I absolutely doubt myself even now um, because I haven't been trained as a designer. There's always that element of imposter syndrome, even though, you know, I've done branding for people and have, you know, put together the initial kind of brand look of the hair care brand that I'm building um, that has really gotten great feedback. I still absolutely question myself because I haven't had that technical training. Um, but yeah, I, I do love being creative. Um, I love sewing my own dresses, using my hands to make things, visualizing things in my head and then trying to bring them to life physically. I actually really love. And yeah, I just never saw myself because I never wanted to pursue a career as a quote unquote creative, never associated that term with myself. The second product on your list is the beauty product that defined your teens and early 20s, which mm. is Mac Studio Fix. Tell me about that one. Yeah, so Mac Studio Fix Foundation, it was like the cream foundation that they had in the compact. I don't know if they still do that one. Maybe they do, or it's called something else. And it was a product that was really nice to have because it was kind of in that prestige bracket. And also Mac was one of the only brands at that time that had a really kind of wide range of shades. And so if you were a black woman and you lived in Australia, it's like you couldn't go anywhere other than Mac. And I remember even getting like my formal makeup done there. And I think there was just a real sense of wow, this brand wants to include me and they have products for my skin tone and um, my mum's skin tone. And so I religiously bought that product and really loved it at the time for a really long time uh, until I got a bit older and decided to kind of move away from foundations. But yeah, NC44 was my <laughs> shade. <laughs> I don't think you ever forget your MAC shade if it was, you know, part of the teens, but um, it was it was definitely a staple and something that I loved because, you know, I got to be part of this brand that my friends also liked and most other brands on the market that my friends used didn't cater to my skin tone. So it meant a lot that, that MAC had that kind of breadth of shades and that inclusive message from way back when. Because you have said previously that there was a time and I wonder if you still feel like this when like you mentioned the big you felt like the big brands didn't care about you as a consumer because they weren't they weren't catering to mm. you and obviously there's the whole Fenty effect as it has been yeah. dubbed of something that is not negotiable anymore yeah. it's kind of a given and what are your thoughts on that because there's also the other side of that is that it's becoming a box to tick and brands maybe aren't doing it for the genuine reasons. Yeah, and I think that, I don't want to sound jaded, but I, th I think with the Fenty effect, the majority of the time, this kind of inclusive, you know, strategy box tick isn't genuine. And these are brands that have been around for a really long time. Black people and people of colour have always been there. It's only now that the Fenty effect has come into the market that they're realising that there's always been an opportunity there. You just have to talk to people in the right way. And I always found that interesting with brands that would, you know, have the option to launch a wider range of shades, but would opt not to because typically in the past those shades haven't sold well. But it's very cyclical. And if you're not providing the shades, people aren't going to come to your brand to get that product. And if they're not coming to your brand to get that product, you're not going to provide the shades. And it just kind of goes round and round in a circle. And so what Fenty did was come out of the gate and say, we are for everyone. And it had a massive halo effect on the market. But I think it's it's a great time to be, you know, a woman of colour or a person of colour that is launching a brand because for the most part, 
as brand founders, you're launching it because there hasn't been anything there for you. So there is a real genuine authenticity to that. And I do, I think it's great that there are now options there, but consumers are smart. Customers are smart. We know if something's genuine or not. And I think specifically in the US market, that's really important. And customers really care about who founded the company and, you know, where that money is going. And they're really voting with their dollars. So positive in the sense that there's more options for people, but it's almost a case of too little too late. And I think that is really interesting as well. Such a great point you made about there is, it does feel at this moment that consumers, the power shifted to us. Yeah. Like you said, voting voting with our dollars and even trends being led based on what people are talking about and things like that. Yeah. So it's exciting that power shift, I think. Yeah, I agree. The third product on your list, this one makes me smile a lot, is typically a fragrance that has an, a special memory or meaning for you. And possibly this is my favourite answer to this prompt. <laughs> and one that... I need to hear you talk more about is the Spice Girl deodorant. Oh, yes, the Spice Girl deodorant. I don't necessarily have a specific memory around it, but I do absolutely remember opening. It was either a dolly or a girlfriend mag and finding that strip of the Spice Girl deodorant sample and I would just take it everywhere with me. I actually don't think I ever owned the full-size product. I do remember seeing it in real life. Maybe my friends, like one of my friends had it, but I specifically remember that strip and I kept it for so long and it lasted forever. I wouldn't be surprised. You know, I'm, I'm a bit of a hoarder as well as my mum. I wouldn't be surprised if I went home and kind of rummaged through the shed if it's in there somewhere in a file. <laughs> but it was very much like the fragrance of the moment and kind of defined the mood, which was this like Spice Girls takeover era. And so I had this strip and then I also had these like amazing chunky wedges that were like so Spice Girls. One of them had like a Union Jack on it and the other one was like these brown boots that just had this massive chunky heel, which is actually back in fashion now. I kind of wish I kept them. (laughs) But yeah, just that whole vibe. And that is the kind of product where, I don't know if you're listening, it was Impulse? I can't remember which brand it was. It was probably something like Impulse. Impulse or so something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If they did a reboot of that, I would absolutely stock up. Even though I don't use aerosol anymore, I'd still be down for it. (laughs) (laughs) Next product launch. Um, There you go. You moved to Melbourne from Perth for when you landed the internship at L'Oreal. Tell me about those first six months because you've got a lot going on. You've got New job, new state, and not only new job, but a kind of first full-time job yep. as well. What what was that period like? It was really hard. <laughs> I, you know, thought I'll move to Melbourne for a year, smash out this internship, then I'll move back to Perth and figure out what I'm doing. And so I always moved with the intention of I'm here to work. I'm not really here to have, I say have fun. I sound like such a downer. But, you know, my intention was always put everything into the internship. If you make friends, great. It's like it's like The Bachelor, not here to make friends. Um, but, you know, I did actually make some really great friends. Uh, but for the most part, I was really determined to just put my all into this internship. If I had to work late nights, no worries. It didn't, didn't really matter. Like my weekends, I would dedicate to the job. That's totally fine. And yeah, it just ended up being so much harder than I expected, even though I had that mentality. And people had warned me. They were like, this is this is tough. Like it's a tough company. It's a tough industry. And you know what you're like when you're that age? You're like, yeah, but I can do it. Yeah. (laughs) Then you get in there and you're like, oh. That naive optimism. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, the first six months were really tough because it was like, yes, you're working hard, but it's still not enough. And, you know, when you're on a team that 
you know, there's really high expectations across the business for this team to perform well. Um, that's a lot of pressure. And, you know, we had a lot of turnover. So you kind of had to just like jump in the deep end, figure out how to swim or drown. <laughs> and yeah, it was a pressure cooker. I thought about quitting multiple times, but, you know, I ended up staying and things definitely turned around after that six month mark. And it's funny because I remember when I first got there and, you know, someone from HR was like, look, it's probably going to take you about just under a year to figure this out and settle in. And I was like, a year? No way. Like, I'll be fine in a month. Yeah. Um, but they were right. It takes you at least a year just to settle in, figure out what the hell you're doing before you can actually really start performing well. But yeah, around that six month mark, things turned around. You feel a lot more comfortable in your position. You know, the team had turned over quite a bit. And so I was kind of the hoarder of knowledge in terms of like where all the files were and how we produce this and who's the contact for that. And, and what were you doing? What was your role? Yeah, so I was the intern on initially on skincare and then I moved on to makeup fragrance and gift so I was supporting two managers that was the hardest time I think and then eventually we got another support so I was doing essentially brand management for purely makeup by the last few months um, and that was a lot better because you really just get to focus on your acts as they call them and become more of an expert in that space and what you're doing because they're all so different like makeup is there's so many skews and um, there's a lot of logistics that go on with that um, versus something like skincare where, yeah, there's a lot of skews, but you don't have shade ranges and you don't have to contend with that. So I was doing a lot of social media. You know, social media wasn't really a thing at the time. It was like Longcom had a Facebook page, but I was the intern and I was managing it. Yeah. <laughs> Working with the agency to manage that. Uh, I did a lot of content creation um, and then sort of towards the end of it, really just kind of like owning that makeup acts along with my manager building out the strategy getting the books from Paris and building out a local launch plan and then actually implementing that launch plan as well so having a lot of contact with the stores and merchandising and finance and supply chain yeah a bit of everything all really. the touch points all the touch points especially when you are in the Lux division in L'Oreal so there's a couple of different divisions but Lux is essentially like the department store brands and that's very operations heavy and so you do get to touch every single piece of the business and the brand and as marketing and brand management you're the owner of the brand and everything comes down to you all of the other functions are there to support um so yeah you really have to kind of take the lead and also be responsible for you know the wins and the losses the fourth product on your list is the one that gives you a bit of a confidence boost and I know this one does come from that time at L'Oreal so tell me more about the Lancome Oscillating Mascara. Yes, the Oscillating Mascara, I think it was called Oscillation and it was a mascara that got discontinued while I was an intern, um, but we had a few in the stock cupboard and I absolutely love this mascara. It's a vibrating mascara, so, you know, it works fine with the vibration, but you really don't need it. And just like the, the way that the wand is designed is just perfect for my lashes, even the formula. I mean, some I actually still have a couple left in my stash because <laughs> it lasts so long but I'm I'm sure they're expired by now but even just to have the wand and use it with a different formula is unreal and I don't know why they discontinued it but hopefully they'll bring bring it back or something similar I think there was also a, a primer with the same or similar name and those two together is like unreal but yeah that's my go-to mascara which no one else can really get unless they have it in another country I'm not entirely sure but they definitely discontinued a worldwide it worldwide search do you remember that phase where 
a lot of brands kept bringing out mascaras that had the primer on one side and yes. the wand on the other. I do, they yes. They don't do that much anymore, do they? No, they did bring one out when I was on L'Oreal Paris um, and it was actually really good. But I don't know, I just find it, it, it works when you use it. You're like, oh, I understand why why they do it now but then in your day-to-day or at least for me in my day-to-day I'm like can't be bothered it's another step exactly (laughs) so let's talk about bread beauty supply which is the beauty brand hair care brand that you have founded and you kind of touched on this before a lot of beauty brands are founded to fill a gap in the market and particularly as a founder something that you can't find for yourself Mm. is that the case with bread beauty supply yeah, definitely. I left L'Oreal with the intention of launching my own brand because I just overall, my ambition was to address this problem that consumers like me and more diverse pools of consumers weren't being spoken to and didn't have brands that catered to them in a lot of areas. Um, and at the time it was um, makeup because this was pre-Fenty and I thought, cool, I'm going to launch a makeup brand. It's going to have, I think at the time, a hundred shades. <laughs> super ambitious and yeah I started kind of investigating that and doing a bit of research building out a a concept Um, but then about six months into that I went on a trip to the US this new job that I was in and I had flown from New York to Colorado and I had a hair relaxer in my suitcase and relaxers are basically these kind of chemical products that you apply to your hair the, the process probably looks similar to bleaching, but the product basically breaks the disulfide bonds of your hair to make it straight. And they're incredibly toxic. Some of the older ones are made with lye, which is really bad for you. And I had been using this product on my hair since I was like six or seven years old. And you have to maintain it every three to six months, depending on how fast your hair grows. So I'd been doing this for a really long time. And so many other women, probably the majority, I would say, of women who have my texture of hair, which is really dense, really coily, have done the same since childhood. And I had one in my suitcase, arrived in Colorado. We were in the middle of like Beaver Creek, somewhere in the mountains. And I was due for a top up, opened my suitcase and the relaxer had exploded over all of my stuff. Oh gosh. Which is just a nightmare in any case. But this was like, sometimes you have like lotions and things and like the cap comes loose and you get a little bit of spillage. But this was like everywhere. It was just chaos, just absolute chaos. And I thought, okay, so why am I still putting this product on my head? I had really been thinking about the skincare products that I was using on my body and on my face. And in that moment, I guess maybe because I was in the middle of nature, I was like, wait a minute, my scalp is also my skin. It's actually one of the most absorbent parts of your body. And why am I still putting this product on my head every three to six months? This surely has to be really bad for me. Um, And decided then and there that I would stop using it, go back to my natural texture, which is very, as I said, dense and coily. And I didn't realise when I made that decision how much of a an intense process it would be to make that transition because essentially you've grown up your entire life with straight hair. Um, so if you have a routine down, you know what products to use for straight hair, all of a sudden your hair is technically curly. You're like, oh, what do I use and what kind of routine am I supposed to have? Is it the same and, and what ingredients can I use and what, what can't I use? And I was like, cool, I'm going to have to buy products that are designed for my hair type. And when I went to the, they call it, it depends on the store, but it's like the ethnic hair care aisle basically in the US. I was just so shocked at the state of the whole category and, and the products that were there because it was, yeah, like a time warp. Like I'd gone back to the 90s in my mum's salon. These products all looked the same. It was really confusing and just really overwhelming. They all spoke the same. And 
you know, as consumers in, you know, whatever year that was, 20, 2016 or 17 and, and now, I think we just have such higher expectations about the brands that we buy and we also attach our brand identity to the brands that we buy and there was just nothing that I wanted to buy or invest my money in or kind of be associated with really and I thought you know I don't think anyone else is going to build this because it's such a lucrative opportunity and nobody has done it and so if I can kind of see this unique insight then I should build this brand and these are products that I want to buy so I kind of started from there. And I think that's interesting if you're feeling about that when you're looking at the US selection when you think about what is available in Australia, which would be, I don't know, 1% of that, yeah, that's even more kind of yeah. shocking. Yeah, it's super minimal. Access here is still really, really lacking. And so we do plan to launch online so that we have some distribution in Australia. But when I decided to launch this brand, I really wanted to build something big because for me, like the end goal is really important and I really wanted to create something that's going to have an impact and so for me my main market is actually the US even though there are so many products on the market it's super fragmented it's very much like a cottage industry it's almost like the general cosmetics market 10 or 20 years ago like there's so much scope and so much opportunity create something really large that can have a massive impact Um, and so yeah that's our focus market but absolutely in Australia I think the need is access it's just a smaller population pool but obviously we want to provide for them as well and our products are Australian made which is really exciting it is very exciting and now you did speak about it before the relaxer that is actually the fifth product on your list Um, and it's called just for me is that right yeah that's one of the brands or sub brands um, of relaxer and It's really funny because it's designed for children. So it's called Just For Me. All of the branding and the colouring is like super youthful and playful and they have a picture of like a a little girl in there with her straight hair and her beads or whatever she's got. And I just vividly remember having that product and looking at that girl on there or even some of the other relaxers that I used growing up, like Dark and Lovely is one of the brands. And you had this image of this black woman on there with her straight hair and her her bob or her like straight hair with a curl in it. And that was the image of, you know, beauty. And that was super aspirational at the time. And I remember looking at those images on these boxes and thinking, yes, I want to look like her and I want to have straight hair like her and like billowy and movement. And things have changed really drastically. And I always kind of remember those visuals and actually if you look at bread now like once we release our first product we're using face visuals on our product it's super interesting because the face visuals that we're using are girls with textured hair and they're short and cropped or you know not perfectly gloss and it's so in contrast to those face visuals that I used to look at growing up on these packets of relaxer and they still exist they're still in a lot of stores and I'm pretty confident that it's actually the same imagery Wow. Yep, same models, same imagery. Girl hasn't aged. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, we talk about the link between your hair and identity. I don't know if you've watched, have you watched Fleabag? No. One, you need to watch Fleabag. Okay, great. I will. This isn't a spoiler, but there's this great scene where Fleabag's sister gets a terrible haircut. She was going Mm. for this kind of angular French thing and it ends up being like completely wonky. (laughs) And she's, she turns to her sister and is like, please tell me, like, it's okay, am I? And she's oh. like, oh, yeah, it's fine. It's it's chic. It's French. 
And then they just get into this. There's this really great quote about they go to the hairdresser and the hairdresser's like, it's it's just hair, you'll get over mm, it. And she's like, mm. it's not just hair. Hair is everything. Hair mm. has so much impact on the way it makes you feel and yeah. and kind of your identity. Is that something that you've made the connection with or resonates with you? Definitely. And it's, it is interesting because this idea of your identity being tied to your hair is the same across cultures. You know, it might express itself in different ways, but whether you're black or white or Indian or wherever you're from, there is some kind of inherent tie to our hair that is linked into our identity. And I think for, you know, the customer that I'm going after, it's it's a very political thing. It's very sensitive um, because typically so many women have been, and men and everyone have been discriminated against because of the texture of their hair in workplaces it's still happening now in 2019 people are being fired for wearing dreadlocks or or braids or having an afro being sent home from school and interestingly there's been some legislative changes in the u.s in new york and california today and there there's been bills passed that say that employers are no longer able to discriminate against their employees based on their hair um, specifically natural hair. Um, so natural hairstyles styles tied to black community. Um, so that's a massive step in, you know, the right direction and hopefully we'll see more of that. But, yeah, just the fact that there there is legislation tied to this goes to show you how deeply rooted the issue is and how deeply rooted that idea of hair and identity is. The sixth product on your list is the product that you would trust with your life and it is Blistex and it sounds like you are a bit of lip balm fan I to have, begin with anyway. Yeah. I have notoriously dry lips and so I have a Blistex like everywhere. I have one in my car, I have one somewhere in my house, in all of my different bags. Um, and it's just always been a really handy and consistent go-to. I know it's like really bad for you, especially putting it on your lips and, you know, you're technically probably going to swallow it at some point, but I just haven't found anything else like it. And so I just constantly purchase it. <laughs> Um, and it does what it says on the tin. So I really like it's not glamorous at all. But yeah, if I had to have one product, I would probably pick Blistex. Yeah. Yep. And any other lip balm favourites or Blistex is always the go-to? Um, so I love Blistex. And then on the more natural front, I love the Frank Body Balm. I've always tried to kind of convert to a more natural lip balm so that I can move away from Blistex. Uh, but I just haven't found any aside from the Frank one that have the right amount of moisture and the right texture. And Frank is the only one that I found that doesn't feel either super oily or thin. Um, or sticky. I or hate sticky, the sticky feeling. Yeah, or too thick like a Vaseline. Yeah, it's pretty perfect and it's it's a good price as well. But I still can't say farewell to my trusty Blistex. Back to Bread Beauty Supply. How long has it been from the seed of the idea to where we are currently? And it's not released yet, but are we getting close? Yeah, we are getting close, but it's been a really long journey. So that seed of an idea came, I believe, in 2016. And, you know, from that point, I kind of like dabbled with it, worked on the concept a little bit on the side, moved into a new role, a new job where... You know, I was very upfront and said, this is what I want to build. And my friend Greta was like, cool, why don't you come and work with me? I'll teach you what I know and you can help me build up my new company as well. And I was like, great, so I can do this. I can work on bread on the side until it comes to a point where, you know, it's no longer feasible. And so, yeah, I tinkered with it on the side for a really, really long time. I didn't go full time on it until earlier this year. Um, when I got into the Sephora Accelerate program. But yeah, once you kind of go full time on something, it's like, 
all right, pressure is on. And yeah, it's been a, a really long time. And you know, when you start out and everyone's like, it's going to take 10 times longer than you think. <laughs> I'm like, no worries. I'll be launched in three months. <laughs> yeah, no, three years later and <laughs> we're almost ready to launch. So yeah, it's been a very kind of long, but thoughtful and deliberate process. And that's the thing as well. I mean, I, I love hearing that kind of information as well, because we see so much of the overnight success and, you know, yeah. I have an idea and then a week later yep. I'd, sold a, I'd sold out of a million, <laughs> a million of them or whatever, but that's never the reality. It's never the reality, no. And so you mentioned the Sephora Accelerate program. Mm-hmm. I know you have been jetting off to LA and San Francisco. Yeah. That. What, what, what is that? So the Sephora Accelerate program is this, I guess, kind of like acceleration incubation program that Sephora runs out of the US. It's been running for four years. I think we were the fourth or fifth cohort. And basically they pick anywhere from 10 to 15 brands, depending on the year, from around the world to go to San Francisco Sephora head office, do a boot camp week. They help you with your brand, help you um, with your development. We're all at different stages. So whether it's, you know, your launch plan or formulations, or if you're already in market, it's about, you know, how can you expand and grow and what's next? And then you go back after about five or six months and you present at a demo day. Sephora brings in, you know, their merchants and executives um, plus, you know, 70 to 100 investors or maybe a bit more. And you have to present your product and your idea and and have an ask, whether it's investment or you're looking for retail partners and then kind of, yeah, go from there. But it's their way of showing support to female founders specifically um, because we are, believe it or not, so underrepresented in the beauty space where, you know, we are 90% of the customer base, but we're certainly not 90% of the ownership. So, yeah, it's their way of kind of giving back and, and fostering that community incredible and I imagine that you obviously pitched or put yourself forward to that Mm. was that kind of um, we'll kind of talk about your idea of success a bit later but was that in this three-year journey to bring bread to where it is now is that a moment that felt like it was becoming real or recognition or anything like that yeah it was actually like so I found out about the Sephora Accelerate program the first year that they ran it and I was still at L'Oreal at the time and I actually still remember, I think, sitting on my computer and there was an article about it in, it must have been some kind of industry publication. And I thought, oh, that looks interesting. And this was the time where I was like, I'm going to build a beauty brand. Don't know what it is yet, but, you know, I'm going to explore. And I still have the email in my inbox from Lily, the program manager, who's still the program manager today, um, saying, hey, like, are you guys going to run this again? And at the time it was invite only. So they didn't really have an application process for the first year. And I can't remember what she wrote back. It was something like, oh, we'll open it again in you know six months time please get back in touch then and I always kept my eye on it I actually it's a, it's a really long-winded story I'll t- try to tell it really quickly <laughs> because there are so many dots to connect on this journey to like getting to Sephora Accelerate so I knew about the program I was really lucky to meet Elaine Welteroth in Sydney a couple of years ago when she came here for I think it was some kind of there's like a book week, not book week. It was a Sydney Writers Festival. Sydney Writers Festival. Because I went to see her speak as well. Oh my God. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. So I had no intention of going based in Melbourne and I had always wanted to meet her and I saw that she was going literally like the day before it was happening and I was like, crap, how did I not know about this? And I sent her a cold email. I said, hey, I'm going to be in Sydney at this Writers Festival. Do you have time to meet for a coffee? And by some miracle, she wrote back and was like, yep. I can meet you for a coffee. And I was like, oh, okay, guess I'm going to Sydney. (laughs) 
And just for context, she was the former editor of Teen Vogue. Yes. So at the time she was the um, editor-in-chief at Teen Vogue and really kind of the face of this Teen Vogue renaissance. And they had started moving into more political reporting, becoming much more of an activist publication for, you know, Gen Z in America. And I met her for a coffee. It was amazing. We just chatted about so many different things. We chatted about beauty. We chatted about like race relations in the US and in Australia. At the time, the job that I was in, I was running conferences and she was about to launch the Teen Vogue conference six months later. So she was asking me about that. And we just spent the day like shopping. (laughs) It was really, really great. But to cut a long story short, when the Teen Vogue conference happened later that year in Los Angeles, she was like, oh, you have to come. And I was like... We had a chat and I was like, I'd I'd love to come in, like work backstage. And then, yeah, when they announced it, I was like, you know, would love to come along. She was like, yes, absolutely. Anyway, that conversation fell off like the face of the earth. And I was like, cool, I'm not going to LA to the Team Vogue conference. And then like two weeks before it was happening, she was like, hey, so are you coming? And I had emailed her team and they had written back saying, no, sorry, we're not taking volunteers. So I'd written it off. And I was like, no, your team said they're not taking volunteers. And she was like, oh, okay, Um, well, let me put you in touch with the head of the department. (laughs) Oh, okay. So once she did that, I was like, crap, okay, now I actually have to go because she's gone to all of this effort. So they got me on the volunteer team. I think they were probably like, who is this girl? We, why do we need (laughs) But anyway, I got on a plane and I went and I was like, how can I make the most of this? There was a woman from Sephora speaking. It was supposed to be the head merchant, Artemis, who at the last minute couldn't make it. And so it ended up being a woman who was heading up makeup. She was a VP in the makeup division. And I was just so out of sorts. I was like, How am I? I, usually I'm okay talking to people at events, but I was like, I don't know how to approach this woman. I felt so much pressure. Like, what am I going to say? But eventually I cornered her and was like, hi, um, I'm from Australia. I'm launching this hair care brand. You know, what advice do you have for someone who wants to launch in Sephora? And she was like, do you have samples? I was like, uh, yes. I had some really early, early lab samples. I was like, but I, and I also have a deck. <laughs> She was like, great, send me the deck and I'll send it to the right person. And I was like, oh, okay, great. And she was like, how easy was that? I was like, pretty easy. (laughs) (laughs) What's the catch? Oh, yeah. Um, But there was no catch. I told a white lie and said I'd be in San Francisco later that week. I sent her the deck. Within, I think, 24 hours, the hair care merchant had written back, said, I have 15 minutes tomorrow. I was like, cool, I will be there. I went to San Francisco, met with her. We ended up chatting for an hour. She was so amazing and so, so supportive, even in those early days. And she's actually the one who ended up putting me forward for the Accelerate program. So I had, you know, someone within the business vouching for me. I also somehow got the opportunity to meet with the program manager while I was there. So I kind of had these two contacts. And so then, yeah, when it came time for the Australian applications to open, um, you know, the program manager already knew who I was. I'd kind of taken a bit of a backdoor approach and then yeah, getting the call to say that I had gotten in really, really felt like this kind of moment of all of these experiences culminating in, in that call. And I was like, I did it. <laughs> Incredible. And such a testament, obviously, to you and also just your willingness to be yeah I'll be in San Francisco yeah I'll be in Sydney yeah yeah and I mean there's so much like privilege attached to that to be able to go cool I'm gonna buy a plane ticket and and go to this place which you know is is hard you know not a lot of people could afford to do that and like I'm not particularly wealthy but you know I had a bit of savings and something that I learned a few years ago was like this quote that I heard which was 
and it's a little, it's a bit consumerist, but um, a bit capitalist as well. Um, this idea that successful people do the things that other people aren't willing to do. And so if you can, and you have the opportunity and the availability to do something that people would maybe not do because it's too hard or it's too far or it's too whatever. Or it's just not the done, done, done it's thing. It's not the done thing. Just do it <laughs> and see what happens. The seventh product on your list is the one you always repurchase and also your holy grail, which is the fluff bronzer, which yes. I'm also a huge fan of. Tell me what it is about this particular bronzer that you love so much. Yeah, I think it kind of came about Erica launched the brand at a time where I had, you know, really moved away from heavy makeup, wasn't using foundations as much. And so I had been using, I think maybe a MAC bronzer up until a point, but I really didn't have like a cult bronzer and I loved using bronzer. And so when she launched the product, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, you know, supportive and all that kind of stuff. Then when I actually used it, I was like, oh my God, yeah, <laughs> this is amazing. Just such a different experience from any bronzer I've ever used before. The formula is palm oil free. And I think maybe that that's a lot of what gives it this really unique texture. You don't get any fallout and it's so easy to build. Um, it's not patchy. It lasts all day. I mean, obviously it comes in that really cute <laughs> cloud compact. And so, yeah, it's probably one of the very few products that I now replenish like religiously. So I've got my blisters <laughs> and I've got my fluff bronzer. So I've got quite a few empty pans sitting at home and I always give it to people as a gift as well. <laughs> And it is, you're, it, you're so right in terms of with bronzer, I feel like I've had so many nightmare applications where you get your big brush, you do it around, you go on and then suddenly you've got yes. this stripe on your cheek. I think it's actually impossible to do with the fluff bronzer just because yep. it is so gentle and so easy to build up. I agree. Yeah. No, it's it's amazing. Now, outside of beauty, you did mention before that you, you used to or you still kind of make your own clothes. So there's obviously like a love of fashion. And did you have a vintage blog or yeah, a shop at, at some did. stage yeah I did when I was in my teens I loved op shopping and that came from my mum too my mum liked op shop too but our tastes were very different she was like oh I'll buy the newer stuff and I was like no I want like the retro vintage and I did that so much when I was living in Perth growing up and eventually I was like I should sell this stuff I was following Gary Pepper Vintage at the time and it was kind of like her breakout years and also Tula Vintage, um, what's her full name, Jessica someone, but it was Tula Vintage at the time and I loved both of them and, and their vintage style and saw that they were selling vintage online and thought, yeah, I, c I could do that too. And so I had a blog which was about, you know, some of the fashion things that I found. I would repurpose a lot of stuff. I would alter things, cut things short and then, you know, hem them. And, yeah, I sold on mostly eBay. I can't remember. I don't think I ever ended up selling on Etsy, but it was mostly eBay uh, and markets as well. So a lot of vintage markets. And some of the stuff I found was unreal. What um, was your favourite find or the best score? Oh, I think probably I found a Machino belt and it was $2. Wow. I still have it. <laughs> do you think Do you think it's still possible to have those finds or do you think people are so much more savvier about it now? Yeah, it's so much harder now. In Perth back then, you know, it was just ripe for the picking because not that many people were doing like reselling vintage. We also lived in the suburbs, so had access to some really good shops and, you know, prices were really low. Um, so now, yeah, it's a, it's a lot harder now. 
because so many other people are trying to do the same thing or just buying it because they want to buy it. But yeah, back then it was like, yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> I love that you still have it as well. Oh, yes. I still have a lot of my stuff because there were so many things I bought and was like, oh, yeah, I'll sell it. I'll sell it. And I kept it. <laughs> Can't even imagine what your cost per wear for that $2 belt will be now. Oh, yeah. Incredible. Excellent. Now, we can also not talk about your love of reality TV. Yes. obviously you are <laughs> the co-host of Shameless Media's new podcast, I Reality am, Check. Yeah. Are you loving Love Island at the moment? I'm completely hook, line and sinker in this series. Uh, do you know what? I am. I'm pleasantly surprised. I've always been a huge fan of the UK Love Island. I don't know if you watched that one yes. or not. Yep, great. I sure did. <laughs> and so I've seen all of those seasons. And when Love Island Australia launched, I was like, oh, okay, great. But always a little bit of trepidation because reality shows that come over to Australia tend to be a little bit lackluster most of the time and season one was like a bit of a train wreck but I guess in a good way I mean I still watched it I didn't watch it religiously but I did watch it towards the end I think the beginning and the end like a lot of the middle part I kind of like glossed over a little bit yeah exactly but by the end was so invested in you know Taylor and Grant and Scandal do you know what I love now is that Cassidy and Taylor are friends and they hang out. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's all come full circle. It's so great because it was a really toxic kind of like it got very bitchy, girly yeah. environment, which was kind of disturbing. And I think there was a lot of toxic masculinity as well in season one. Um, Eden. Eden. Oh, God. Let's not go there. But I think season two, we're still seeing like remnants of that, but not in the same way. And I think that – you know, the producers have really stepped it up in terms of drama and literally just like throwing everything at the wall and like seeing what sticks. Um, and I kind of love it. I love the, just the randomness of it all. Yep. <laughs> I think it keeps us on our toes. I was actually in the UK for the last season of Love Island. Oh, wow. And it was the best to be, because, you know, normally in Australia, we're watching it. We're trying to find a link to watch the episode. Yeah, yeah. And you're kind of watching it from afar, but to be in it, like on a Sunday night, sitting down on the TV to watch it. Yeah. It's the best. It's such a good experience. And also just comparing it with Love Island Australia, they sent the new, the bomb squad in and instead of being sent to another villa, the girls got shoved in, Into in the, the hideaway. hideaway. So you've been shortchanged. Psychological torture. I can't it really believe is. they did that. Yeah. But I think reality TV is interesting because it can be seen as uh, totally stupid and trivial, but and this is something I've said on the podcast, is I just see it as an escape, really, from everyday life and also just a bit of an analysis on society and the way that we react to things and seeing whether, you know, your reactions align with, you know, the rest of the general population, which for me this season has been very confronting because there are so many things that have happened where I've been on the absolute opposite end of the general reaction. Yeah, so I was kind of like Team Vanessa. Oh, I know. Okay. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> I try not to tell too many people this. But, um, it's like a, yeah. a secret admission. Yeah, exactly. If you had to pick your favourite reality TV franchise, yep. what would it be? Oh, that's a tough one. I think for nostalgic purposes, maybe something like America's Next Top Model. Yes. <laughs> I haven't watched the recent seasons, but I absolutely watched it religiously growing up. Can't even imagine what number season. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's really, really evolved over the years, but definitely that, and also the hills. The final product on your list is product that kind of contributes to your signature look or a glam look, which is a red lip but 
a muted red lip. Yeah. Tell me the product and, and why you like that one. So I do like to have colour on the lip, but I haven't necessarily found a holy grail for what that is because, as I mentioned before, I have really dry lips. And so, you know, using matte products has always been an issue for me. And I just want something that's like more of a stain. And I think a lot of like liquid lip stains I haven't really liked because you just get a lot of deposit in the cracks of your lip. Um, but what I'm using at the moment that I am, I think I'm liking is the Generation G um, lipstick from Glossier. And I don't know what shade it is, but it's like a pinky red. And yeah, I'm, I'm quite enjoying that. They changed the packaging recently. So it's a massive step up from what it was before. I think mine broke within like the first two oh. weeks last time. It's in my bathroom somewhere. But the new packaging is a lot more sturdy. Um, the actual kind of lipstick bullet is a lot wider it was very thin before so yeah that's my go-to at the moment and something that I can kind of wear every day or even like layer it a little bit more if it's um, more of an evening event or a special occasion but yeah it's pretty it's pretty good I'm still open to you know finding the one that really hits the spot yeah that's the one for now what does success look like to you and that can be in a career sense or just in personal life in general interesting question because Growing up, I always was someone who wanted to kind of climb the corporate ladder. So not necessarily, I mean, when I was doing law, I was like, cool, I want to get to like the top of the game. And then when I moved into marketing, I was like, yep, cool, going to climb the ladder, get to the end. And it wasn't until I kind of went to this like leadership development program um, in Los Angeles uh, that my friend runs now where we really discussed this idea of working back from your ultimate goal in life. Like when you get to the end, what is it that you want to have done? And it doesn't have to be like a tangible goal because I think that's hard. You kind of change and and move around like through your life. But if that end goal can be a feeling or something that you give back, like how do you want people to feel um, or how do you want to feel at the end of your life and then kind of build a goal around that, that to me is my idea of success. And it's why I'm doing what I'm doing because I want to get to that point at the end of my life where I'm like, okay, I had a massive impact and I helped people that needed to be helped in the best way that I could and with the most impact that I could. And I know I'm, you know, an able-bodied person who has the means and the opportunity to potentially create something big. And so I put a lot of internal pressure on myself to actually take advantage of that and not kind of rest on my laurels. And, you know, if I can get to that end point and achieve that goal, that feeling and that position of having given it my all and been able to give back to people that to me is success. How I get there, I don't know yet. This is the plan so far is building bread and and creating something really big there. And I thought about what my skills are, what I care about, the idea that came to me and whether it was big enough to create this thing. And yeah, I'm just going full force at that because I knew that if I got to the end of my life and had never tried, that would hurt more than playing it safe. That's such a great attitude and way of reframing it. I love that. Mm, Thanks. Now, the final question is you've talked us through the eight products on your list. If you had to pick just one, I have a suspect that I think I know what it's going to be, but you might surprise me. What is the one product that you will take to Beauty Island? And remember that it doesn't have to be the most practical, just mm. the one that you want to keep you company. Oh, I would say, oh, that's hard, but I'm going to say, I think I'm going to say the Trezor. It's so rooted in my story and my mum and my childhood that having that scent 
with me, I think is probably the most important thing to kind of like keep those memories and for those memories to be with you through scent because it is such a sensorial thing, like the fact that scent can evoke memories for you. So, yeah, I'd pick the trezor for my mum. Beautiful choice. Maeva, thank you so much for sharing your products and your stories with me today. Now, if people, and I know a lot of people will, want to find out and keep up to date with where Bread is at and what's happening, where's the best place to find that? Yeah, so Bread is on Instagram at breadbeautysupply and we're also at breadbeautysupply.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brittany. so much for listening to this episode of beauty island i hope you enjoyed it and remember you can find all the details of where to find and follow maver and bread as well as all the products she spoke about today in the show notes of this episode if you fancy chatting more beauty you can find me on instagram at beauty island podcast or my personal beauty account at Brittany beauty bts or send me an email beautyislandpodcast at gmail.com I also recently relaunched my regular beauty column slash newsletter called It's a Beauty, where I send out reviews, recommendations and tips and tricks delivered straight to your inbox each week. So far, we've talked about whether the SPF in your makeup is enough. Spoiler, definitely not. And the thigh chafing buster that you need this summer. So as I said, you can sign up to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, bye bye.